You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey everyone, Matt from Occupier here. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the Fully Occupied Podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe on your favorite listening platform or just shoot us a note at marketing at occupier.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on future guests, topics you'd like to hear about, ask us any questions you have, or just say hi. Enjoy the show. Chase, welcome to the Fully Occupied Show. Pleasure to have you on, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Wish we were doing it in person, though. Yeah, I see you're in the home office there. You got your your, your basketball behind you, and your American flag. Yeah, I made sure to, to put the ball there to uh, gloat about the one time that Hamilton beat Bowden in hoops when I was there. So I'm sure you dropped the triple-double that game, too. So we can we – can, From uh, the bench. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well – it's it's been great, you know, watching the progress at HQO. We'll get to the uh, we'll get to the meat of, of what you guys are are doing from a company perspective in a little bit. But uh, maybe just give uh, the audience a little bit of uh, understanding of your background and your quick bio. Yeah. So uh, as I alluded to, I'm a Hamilton grad, and my my technical co-founder Kevin McCarthy and I met while we were at school, and. Uh, you know, we graduated 2007, so that was right as uh, obviously the the financial crisis of 0809 was around the corner. So when we're entering into the to the labor market, uh, as I'm sure you remember, not the best time to be getting a job. So I'd love to blame that. I don't know if we would have gotten the jobs we wanted anyway. Um, but we we pretty early on, you know, in college decided. You know, I was a I took CS. Uh, Kevin did not, but he learned it on his own because he's smarter than I am. And we decided pretty early on this this internet thing was compelling and here to stay. So we started our first company while we were in school, kind of built up uh, some digital media and ad tech uh, and sold in 2012 to a company called Advanced Publications. So they're a family-owned, diversified media company. They own like Condonass, Reddit, Discovery Channel, a bunch of newspapers. Um, so we got to see kind of firsthand the, the innovator's dilemma of a traditional business trying to go to digital and some really smart people navigating that, uh, which was, you know, a great learning experience while we were there. And, um, you know, while we uh, got to know one of their you know, operating companies, the American City Business Journal. So if you've ever read like the Boston Business Journal, that's one of 54 publications that that, that Opco yep. owned. Their, one of their largest ad segments was commercial real estate. So that was kind of where we got to know the CBs, the JLLs of the world uh, and became, you know, familiar with the industry. We got really interested in it after we left and kind of WeWork was at the at the height of their valuation in 2017. Um, and uh, we were just fascinated by the concept of this like innovative real estate services business trading like a technology company, which it was not. And uh, that's kind of how we, we said, you know, maybe we should, we should go into this space. Cool. But even if I were on the clock back, I remember you telling me a story about your actual first venture, which is when you were in college. <laughs> weren't you, weren't you printing ping pong balls or 
just traveling around to like SEC schools selling swag with their logos on or something like that. Yeah. So I had a, uh, I had a very lucrative business. I found a manufacturer in China in like 2004, 2005 that you could order 10,000 ping pong balls. And basically it was like two, three cents a ball. And, uh, I didn't know I was living in a single dorm. It was like a closet, uh, at the time. And I did not know how big 10,000 ping pong balls were. So I got this (laughs) shipment to the hell it. center yeah the school is calling down like what the hell is this man like there's a massive package it's not very heavy but it's massive you gotta come get it so i ended up uh using my room as storage and uh i just moved my stuff into a buddy's room when he was at class he wasn't too psyched about it but i gave him a cut of the business and so i started by kind of undercutting the local stores they'd be selling like four ping pong balls for five bucks and I, you know, two, three cents of all my margin was incredible. So I would just undercut them while the stores were open. But then I kind of emulated what later would be like Uber surge pricing, where when the stores closed at night, I had a monopoly. So I would sell <laughs> uh, ping pong balls to the kids on campus for, I don't know, whatever price uh, I yeah. felt like, which the market <laughs> tended to be tied to how many beers I drank. So, uh, then I started, I found a printing uh, company in Ohio that uh, didn't really care about copyright law. And as a 19 year old, I didn't really understand copyright law. So I had, I would print uh, school logos and frat logos and I'd just drive to the school, uh, show up, sell them to people, hang out with people. And I was, I mean, I was printing money. It was a great business. Uh, and then eventually there was a, a cease and desist that came from the NCAA around copyright infringement. I did not know I was allowed, not allowed to use those logos. So um, that, uh, that business was good. What I should have done was just go get the rights to the logos and kept going, but I was kind of on to the, to the digital media thing. So it was a good, good racket while it lasted. It was also probably a, a taste of like what, you know, life is like now, like you, you kind of alluded to entering the job world. I was, I'm, I'm, you know, four years ahead of you in terms of graduation and same thing. Like I didn't really know what I wanted to do after college. I knew I was entering into a choppy labor market, but having that like entrepreneurial experience early on and just, you know, understanding kind of what you don't know and just figuring it as you go. I, I think that probably benefited you once you guys started your first thing. Yeah. I mean, I was someone who, you know, growing up, it's funny. Like my, my sister was love school, 1600 SATs, went to Harvard. I very rarely made it to class. Didn't learn in the classroom. I liked selling stuff from, you know, the time I was in middle school. Um, so I kind of naturally gravitated towards the ping pong ball stuff. And I don't know, just, trying to make a buck. I enjoyed the, the chase, no pun intended. And um, I think when what happened in, I, if people remember in like 07 through 09, there was this kind of narrative around, um, there was a lack of entrepreneurship. So you had like Y Combinator, which was located in Cambridge. And for the real estate folks, that's the, you know, probably the most prominent startup accelerator on the planet. Uh, and it was just kind of getting a, its head of steam and tech stars, which is another uh, startup uh, accelerator was starting to pick up steam and kind of the concept of like 
cloud computing and it becoming much less costly to start a technology business was coming into play. Seed capital wasn't super prominent, but people started to realize like, hey, we don't need to write a $5 million check to get a technology company off the ground. We can write a $500,000 check to come off the ground. So I think we just got very lucky that we had some entrepreneurial instincts in kind of our founding group that, and we kind of collided, like the, the shit economy led to people being forced into being entrepreneurs, which, you know, I think we got very lucky with that. Yeah. And I think at the same time, like you had the rise of Facebook and it was kind of cool to be starting a tech company. And it was like, wait a minute, there's a whole other area of like work that you could pursue rather than your traditional, like wall street consulting, you know, sales job or real estate job for that matter. Uh, I went the other path and got traditional real estate job, but I guess we ended up in the same place anyways. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny. I I went and like a bunch of my buddies ended up from Hamilton and ended up on wall street. And I just remember watching a few of them kind of like prepping for like Goldman interviews and stuff like that. And I was like, one of my buddies, great guy, but very different from me, got the job. And I was like, well, if that's what they're looking for, I'm I'm probably not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) Like this is going to work out for me. But I saw some of my other buddies that were more like me land there probably like you. And now you've, you've kind of come to, I won't call it the light and the dark side, but you know, you're, you're building something, which is cool. Yeah. You learn what you learn along the way and, you know, you potentially have opportunities to take different paths and some, sure. some people do it. Some people don't, you know, there's no rocket science to it. Um, no, no, I, th- I think like people like overthink entrepreneurship. Like a lot of times it's just like, can you take a beating or not? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. People glorify it like as though like, you know, everybody that starts a company is some like genius that like has all the answers. It's not, you just have to start working, take the first step and then you can get punched in the nose and realize, wow, this thing is tough. Like, how do I, you know, get to the next step and make sure I don't get punched in the nose this time. And then eventually, you know, you dig and dig long enough that, you know, you start to get a little modicum of success and then that gets you even hungrier to keep going. So it's really just hard work at the end of the day. Yeah. Too much of what you see from the outside are the things obviously that worked because when companies start to grow, right? Like, you know, you just raised a $10 million series A. So people see successful fundraise, great VCs behind you. They'll see the current state of the product because that's what they can see on the website and in the news and all those things. But what people don't know is like 99% of what you've been doing were the things that didn't work that ultimately you had to change and kind of continue to iterate to get there. And I think a lot of people who go into entrepreneurship kind of not, not knowing that get hit quickly. And you, you can see within kind of six to 12 months, if, if you don't like uncertainty and failure, uh, it's going to be a tough, tough slog. Even if you don't mind those things, it's a tough slog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, not for the faint of heart. So switching gears, let's talk about your current company, HQO. Now you guys are, you know, one of the premier solutions in your space, if not the, you guys have raised a ton of money yourselves. You've grown a great brand. Start back from when you guys identified that, you know, the commercial real estate space was something that needed, needed some change. Yeah. So, I mean, it's 2017. So some specifics around our past failure. I mean, before we were HQO, we were a company called Venture App. And, you know, we had sold, our founding group had sold a company. So we had some trust with our previous investors, had gotten them a good outcome and went back to them and said, hey, you know, we, 
we kind of stayed through as much of the uh, contract with the, the acquiring company that made sense. And we're looking to start something new, had some ideas, but they were, uh, you know, confident we would figure something out. So, you know, we tested a bunch of different stuff. We kind of had this play venture app, which was really kind of a B2B marketplace um, that was a good business, but it would not have been a venture backed business. So for people unfamiliar with venture capital, you know, the, the business model is Babe Ruth baseball, right? Like high failure rate. They're looking for the top third of the fund to return, you know, exponential 10 X plus returns in the early stage. You know, they want one deal to return the whole fund. So um, when you take venture capital, you're essentially signing a contract saying that you're trying to, you know, drive nonlinear growth. Right. So um, we said, look, this is an okay business, but it's a small business and we got to figure something out that uh, is going to be, you know, venture backable because that's, we took, we take it seriously when we take people's money. That is not how you're supposed to start a company. You're supposed to be very passionate about a burning problem you're solving and solve that problem. But so while we were kind of out in market trying to find a problem for a solution uh, that we had, I was down at WeWork and I was supposed to be meeting with somebody who was in the product team at the time. And, you know, this is the height of it, right? So I'm in HQ, Manhattan, I'm in the lobby. It felt like an EDM concert, right? Like it was just like a party. It was, it was wild. It was like 1 PM on a Tuesday. And I was kind of like, this is a very strange vibe for a workplace. Um, but I don't know, something must be working. So young woman came out and she was like, Hey, are you meeting with so-and-so I'm like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, he's definitely gonna blow you off. Um, I'm like, what? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, yeah, but, uh, I was looking at what you built and like, you've got a really interesting use case for commercial real estate. Like you should think about it, you know, within the industry. So I went back to the team and we took a step back and said, when you look at like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft, right? Like companies that facilitated the end user experience for a hard asset, uh, be it, you know, transportation cars or hospitality, uh, and we thought about the workplace and we we're like, it's a really robust platform where people do a ton of stuff throughout their workday. And there's no good kind of like remote control to facilitate all those things. So that was kind of the impetus for the idea. We built the first version of it in about two weeks, uh, at the end of 2017, went to our investors. We had like, you know, a couple months left of cash and we we're like, Hey, here's the play. And they're like, it's interesting, but you're never going to be able to sell the landlord. The sales cycle will be brutal. You know, if you sell one, we'll bridge you. And we sold four and we're off to the races. So shout out to Ryan Moore at Accomplice. It's not, not easy being the lonely venture capitalist funding a company through a pivot. So uh, we will forever be grateful to Ryan. Um, and then, you know, we ended up getting some, I, the thing I like about the real estate community is that I think like brokers and asset managers, like they just tend to be entrepreneurial people. Um, so a lot of people were willing to help out. They were drawn to the idea, got a ton of introductions really quickly. Um, it's a, it's a big asset class, but kind of a small world. So very quickly got JLL and Divco West and Jamestown and Metaprop and Navitas and some folks that you know, really broad industry expertise to what was a good technology and kind of general go-to-market team to, to the company. And uh, we were off to the races. Awesome. 
So who's your core customer today? Do you sell it directly to the landlord? Do you sell it through, I mean, JLL's partner, investor? Like how, how do you navigate that world? Because as you mentioned, like it is a very entrepreneurial industry. And I think like, because everyone's trying to make a buck in real estate, right? Landlords are trying to push rents. Brokers are trying to make fees. Mm-hmm. So uh, just knowing my experience selling at BTS and building our company now is like, you could really chase your tail on like where the value is because people are just looking at a new shiny object and wondering like, okay, is the rest of the industry catching on to this? Like, am I the one that's going to, you know, put myself up, out on a limb and put the stake in the ground here? Like where, how did you identify like, what is your like ideal customer profile? And then like double down on that. Yeah. I mean, for us, we, um, we're, we're big fans of, of the author, Jim Collins, who wrote uh, like Built to Last and Good to Great. And one of the chapters in Good to Great described, he calls it the hedgehog process, which is you know, the best companies compared to the number two companies were very laser focused on what they could be the best in the world at. And the hedgehog process is it's a hedgehog compared to a fox where the, the best companies are like hedgehogs. They don't get distracted. The fox is kind of running around trying to attack the hedgehog in all different ways, gets distracted very easily. And the hedgehog is very much like they know where they're going, might not be sexy, but they're going to kind of keep plodding along. And so we kind of described our hedgehog really as this like transition to an experiential economy within commercial real estate. And when you look at just about every industry, some are much further along than others. Uh, take like the music industry, even the coffee industry, which I'll kind of give an example. But you have this progression um, from commodities to goods to services to experience, right? And a guy named Joe Pine kind of coined the term experience economy back in 1998, has written and continued to rewrite the book on the experience economy. And when we look at commercial real estate, I mean, it's like the most robust platform. It's where humans spend their lives to be in the experience business. So, you know, you, you see a very, very strong dichotomy of, you know, people in the real estate business that get the end user experience, right? It's not about, you know, the CEO likes one specific location and they're just going to kind of pick an office off of that. Um, they have the mindset that we really need to provide an excellent experience for a hundred percent of the people who come in and out of our, our property every day. And if we're driving those experiences and collecting data on what people like and don't like and how they engage with the property, you know, ultimately that's going to drive asset strategy and it's going to you know, ultimately create premiums. So, you know, in, Pine, in Pine's kind of description, you have this up into the right graph of, uh, experiential businesses are, you know, differentiated and premium from a price perspective. And obviously commodities are, are low prices and undifferentiated. So you see this with like the related to the world, Hudson Pacific, right? Very differentiated experiences. They're very focused on kind of the end user journey and how people use their space. Um, and they, they recognize that obviously to, to be data driven in terms of, uh, experience, you, you obviously have to kind of take on digital transformation. Yeah. And then I would imagine those forward thinking asset owners today are thinking to themselves, like, how do we double down on that? Because people aren't coming to the office every day. Obviously the pandemic has disrupted the traditional office leasing model. 
it'll come back and in, in what form we don't really know but uh, you know and another challenge is like what are the different climates from a political perspective in boston versus la and new york versus austin like you, you got to pick there's so much so many variables i would imagine right now that are kind of um floating through their analysis and if you know if, if a landlord might say well i'm not going to invest in hqo now because there's no one in my building mm. those are the people to me that are like well you're gonna you're gonna lose then you're gonna die and the other the other side of it is like i would imagine your customers are like no we got to double down on this now because we want people to come back into the office when they do we're not going to force them but when they do like our buildings need to be differentiated because it's just going to be a bloodbath out there in terms of leasing. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, hope, hope isn't really a strategy. Right. And I think the, you, you talk to a lot of people in this space and there's kind of a, there's a group of folks that um, will point to, you know, they'll say financial crisis, nine 11, they'll go all the way back to the savings and loans crisis and say like, you know, commercial real estate always comes back. And yeah. I think the the issue with comparing those events to this event is that, you know, two of those are economic uh, issues. One was a, you know, obviously a terrorism issue, but this is different in that it's a f- kind of foundational user behavior change. And I think the parallels are a little bit more akin to what you've seen in say like e-commerce versus retail, right? Where people still shop retail, like this whole like death of retail is greatly exaggerated when you look at the dollar spent the old fashioned way versus e-commerce. But I mean, this is a, this is a permanent and meaningful shift. And I think the retailers that have thrived with, you know, some outliers, obviously that, that go contrarian are the ones that are embracing the shift. So, you know, I don't, I don't think you can kind of avoid the fact that flexibility was happening. It's why WeWork was on their, you know, meteoric rise before COVID. Flexibility, shorter leases, the internet changing how people worked was happening before COVID. COVID has just created, you know, the an acceleration of those underlying trends, but also the exacerbation of the points that you've laid out, which is this kind of like labor versus management, which isn't new. Um you know, with all of the, the issues in terms of supply and demand of labor, there's a lot of leverage on the labor side on how, where, when they work, right? So there's just this like confluence of things that I think are, um, it's a very powerful force. And if you're in commercial real estate and you're really not trying to be an active partner and solution provider to your customers, to help them engage their talent and engage them both away and at the office and help them get them back. You're in a dangerous spot for sure. Yeah. If you kind of looked at it from the user's perspective, because your product is in the hands of the tenants, the people that occupy the space, right? Like the, the folks that are coming into the office every day and experiencing that office building and looking to you guys to help provide them with a guidance on how, how to experience that office building. Like, what's your prediction on how people are going to re-engage with the office? I mean, you also own a company that has, you know, several employees and you're probably remote and you're probably in this position where you want people back in the office, but you can't force them. And, you know, there's these awkward conversations that have to happen on the management level about like, when when do we 
kind of kick it back into the normal gear? Is that ever coming back? You know, what's your, what's your pulse on that? Yeah. I mean, we've talked to, I mean, I've talked to dozens of C-suites at large fortune 100s down to, you know, mid-level companies. And I think everybody's struggling with this where I think the, the, there's no one size fits all response, right? Every company is different. You need to figure out ultimately the best way that you're going to compete for talent and, you know, get the most production out of the, the talent that you have. And so I think everybody's looking for a silver bullet where you just didn't have a decision in the past. It was Monday through Friday, nine to five. That's just kind of how the world worked, uh, which was frankly based on Henry Ford. Like that was when that was created. Like he the manufacturing, that. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, it, it is pretty. We're hard. not working on it. We're no one. Not everybody's working on an assembly line right now, building models. <laughs> yeah, teams, right. right? <laughs> what I find interesting is this: like everyone's moving flax, and uh, a lot of people don't even really know what that means. But everybody's saying flex because it's safe, and it kind of you you get to hedge with employees. Yeah, you like, you yeah, want to come back? You don't want to come back, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah right. So it's kind of bullshit. But um, the. Uh, the thing that we're seeing is flex is more expensive. So even though you might be able to downsize in some ways um, your, your footprint, and even in a lot of places, because there's more collaboration space and social space and things like that, you know, the, the downsizing isn't huge, but even if you can downsize the overhead from a management perspective on coordination and communication and all these things is uh, it's not an insignificant cost. So you know, you have, you're pushing a lot of um, decisioning and responsibility to frontline managers. You know, we talk about this at our company all the time. I was like, look, you know, before the pandemic, we had a one day a week work from anywhere policy that everybody felt was like super progressive. And we just kind of went back to that after the pandemic, because we didn't know. We we're like, look, we're just going to go back. We'll see how it goes. And it's worked it's worked fine, but it was easy for the managers because they just pointed to the policy and they're like, this is how we do it. Yeah. Um, as we've grown, you know, we, it's the tight labor market, right? So we've evolved into, you know, whatever your key meetings are for your teams, like try to do those in person. If you guys happen to be located in the same city and hub. And if you're a manager, you really do have to come up with a couple of rituals throughout the week. And when you're bringing people together, because you have to develop relationships, you have to learn, you have to have kind of that um, team camaraderie and things like that. And it's a heavier lift now because the, the each manager can do it differently. So employees can look at different teams and say, well, how come they do it this way? And I do it that way. So, you know, even worse yeah. than learning about it. Um, it also and, puts like, it also puts a burden on those managers that they weren't really didn't sign up for. So yeah. it's like now, now they're like forced to build trust with people that they normally just kind of like worked with on a day, daily basis. And, executive leadership is now like, Hey, you guys got to figure this out and like, make yeah. sure that you keep your teams together. And it's like, well, I don't know. It was, it was working pretty well before he didn't ask me to do this then. You know, yeah. now it's like, and we, we said this more too. stress we like, on everybody in the business. Yeah. We were like, this is hard, right? Like if, if people don't like it, you can kind of point to me and be like, he's the bad guy. Right. Um, yeah. And you know, I did a tour, right? Like I went and talked to like a hundred of our employees about flex and they were like, we actually want to be back. We just aren't, totally like if there isn't guidance like i'll you know i'm talking to an engineer who's like i came in on tuesday i'm the only one on the team here right like 
that's not worth it. What's so, the point? Yeah. 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 So I think, I think there needs to be, and we're the pendulum is going to swing back to, I think companies providing um, more specifics on when and how you use flexibility um, because it's just hard. It's hard to your point. It's really hard for managers to take on all of the onus on this. And that's kind of how we're, we're viewing it for sure. Cool. Cool. All right. So we're, we're getting up on time here and we're trying to do uh, um, our fast five here. So I'm going to ask you five questions in a row. You're going to have one minute to answer them. You have no yeah. idea what they are. They could be weird. They could be easy. Uh, I think we'll start off with a, I think we'll start off with a pretty softball one for you. Um, so question number one, what's one thing that you're excited for coming up in 2022? One thing I'm excited for in 2022, um, the summer for sure. I, I think we're, I think we're finally, there's a light at the end of the tunnel on some of the, the COVID stuff. Um, I, I think we're going to, I think we're going to have a good comeback as an industry and just as, humanity and then like who doesn't like summer yeah right um all right cool question number two what's one thing that you always say you're going to do but you just never do <laughs> that's a good one uh <laughs> i won't say clean my garage but that would be accurate um so i'll try to focus on work write more content why, why is that it's something that, you know, as you, it scales well, right? One to many communication um, of writing scales really well. And I'm, I always say I'm going to do more of those things. And it, it always falls off the list. Like that yeah, weekly just, blog that I've been meaning to write. Yeah. The blog. Yeah. <laughs> putting, your, putting your thoughts out there. Okay. <laughs> Question number three, what is the best advice you've ever received? Um, the best advice... I guess I'll split that into um, two categories because there's work and I guess life. So I'll start with work from an entrepreneurial perspective. I had someone early in my career say that like the hardest thing about entrepreneurship is really kind of actually parsing the advice that you get. So you really need to be able to maintain this balance of um belief in the face of resistance and criticism and what you're doing, but also you need to be hypercritical and not emotionally attached to, you know, what it is that you're building. Um, so I, I kind of always try to check the barometer on, uh, you know, are you, are you well balanced on those two things? Because if it were easy, everybody would do it, but it's not. And then you're, you're going to have a bunch of haters and cynics and all that stuff along the way. So you have to be able to tune stuff out. Uh, and then on the life side, I think it's, um, I would say the best advice I've gotten is from, you know, my mother who, uh, if you believe something and something is true, it doesn't matter if it's not popular, say it, stand by it. Um, ultimately it should, should work out in your favor. It's not the easiest thing to do, but, uh, particularly in today's climate, I think it's rare and important. Yeah. There's nothing like good motherly advice. I agree yeah. with that. Um, all right. Question number four, are you a night owl or, or a morning person? Wake up almost every single day between four 30 and four 50 naturally. Always been an early bird, early guy. What are you doing at four 30 in the morning? Yeah. Uh, I tried to, I got a one-year-old and a three-year-old boy. So hopefully I'm not trying to convince them to go back to bed, but that happens as you know. Um, yeah. 
I'm, I'm usually a get up and sweat first thing first. So I try to try to get that out of the way and then, uh, uh, bang out the one to two most important, hardest things you got to do every day. Um, ideally that's how it goes, but then, you know, occasionally I'll look at the phone and go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. The world, the world takes over at that point. All right. Question number five, our last question here. What is your most useless talent? Uh, my most useless talent is, God, I'm not a particularly talented guy. Um, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm deadly when it comes to trivia. Like I got, a, I got a lot of useless knowledge. So yeah, uh, that's big Jeopardy my, guy. Yeah. Like, um, I know, I know some random shit. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, I'll, I'll let it, I'll let it pass, but you know, trivial knowledge, it could be very useful. You know, you could be in situations where, you know, either you're doing it at the bar or you're lost in a city that you don't know. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I was going to say, I do well in, bar, in, in bar conversations. I'm, 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 I, I can hang. Oh yeah. Our co-founder, Eric Pearson, he's just like a, a wealth of useless knowledge. Like he literally has Wikipedia in his brain. So it's like, you want to get in a bar trivia contest? Like we're inviting him. He's on the team. Yeah. That is like when my wife gives me a gift for my birthday or something, she'll be like, all right, I'll give you like five hours to just read Wikipedia. And that's, I'm like, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I need, I need to go down this wormhole right now. <laughs> yeah. All right, Chase, this has been great, man. Thanks for joining the show. Um, if people want to find you, HQO, how do they do that? HQO.com. Uh, and my, my, my Twitter handle is Seagarb. Awesome. Best of luck to you, friend. Um, stay in touch. Uh, let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on and congrats on all the success. More to come. All right, Chase. See you, man. See ya. Good stuff, man. Mm-hmm.